All right, we're talking with uh, Jay Klaus today, founder of Creator Science. He used to run the community for Pat Flynn, a uh, big old blogger from back in the day and still kicking ass. Uh, also an investor in Maven and Gumroad. And I wanted to talk to you today, Jay, about podcasting, communities, memberships, courses. And uh, that sounds about like what you do, right? That's all the things, or at least a lot of the things. And then you throw in affiliates and newsletters and you got yourself a, a whole creator business. <laughs> so yeah, all the things. Are all creators just turning into media companies, like one man media companies? I think so. I think at like the highest level, yes. And honestly, I think some of the most successful creators, at least in terms of like velocity to finding success, are the ones who have more restraint than I do. And they say, you know what, actually, I'm just going to do Twitter for like three years and I'm going to mm. crush that and do that really, really well. And when I feel like I'm reaching some sort of plateau there, then I'm going to parlay that audience over to LinkedIn or, you know, the inverse. Uh, I think I think a lot of people look at the models that they see of creators they they look up to and and want that similar business. And they try to replicate the entire model right off the bat and build everything slowly. And I think that's honestly probably a mistake, uh, one that I'm actively making right now. Huh. How, how old are you, by the way? 31. Okay. So you've seen the rise and fall of a couple different social platforms, right? For sure. Um, so you, you run, a, you run a, a thing called Creator Science. What do you recommend people start off with? Like if they're just getting started off with, how do they normally start? I think everything comes down to like a question of sustainability. What, what can you sustainably do for a period of three to five, even 10 years? Because if you are looking at today's landscape and seeing that, okay, short form video seems to be where there's a ton of opportunity right now. I guess I'll do TikTok and Reels and YouTube Shorts. That's great unless you hate doing short, short form video. Because if you hate doing short form video, like it's going to come through in the content. It's not going to be very good. You're not going to want to keep doing it and you're going to flame out. And all of that time of uh, effort that you put in was all for naught and all gone to waste because you just tried to do something that you thought was a good idea or thought was an opportunity, but didn't actually fit your interests and therefore probably your skill set. So really it's, it's starting on what feels the most natural to me. I do recommend that when choosing platforms, you choose at least one platform where you kind of own the relationship to your audience, whether that's a newsletter or a podcast or a community, and then uh, finding a discoverability platform that fits you well, whether that's YouTube or some social media platform. And that's kind of like the one-two punch that a lot of people start with. So which are, which are all the platforms that you're using? Or is it just all of the above? Well, I started with email and podcasting uh, and probably Twitter. And now uh, I'm putting a lot of effort into LinkedIn and YouTube as well. And I wish when I started the podcast, I would have started it as a video native, video first show to begin with, because it's a lot easier to go from video first show with an audio only option than an audio first show that has compelling video. Like you have to completely reimagine the dang thing. So now it's, it's really newsletter, podcast, YouTube, Twitter, uh, community. I think that covers basically where I'm at. I mean, like, have I dabbled with TikTok? Yes. Do I have a lot of uh, uh, conviction in it? No. Same with Instagram. But otherwise, I'm pretty much everywhere. Okay. Hypothetical scenario that will never happen. But I'm holding a gun to your head and you have to drop every social platform except one. Twitter. Can you expand on that? Well, it's it's a couple of things. One, that is like what has been the most sustainable platform for me. It's what I'm most interested in. Uh, it's where I think a lot of the people that I jive really well with hang out and exist. 
And also, I, I've had a lot of success selling things through Twitter and not even close on other platforms, other like discoverability platforms. So I'd probably say Twitter, um, even though I think YouTube probably has a bigger opportunity. I can't do YouTube on my own without the help of an editor. And I have a really great editor. He's amazing. And we're doing awesome work on the channel. But if I'm going to pick one thing, I'm going to pick one thing that I feel really adept at and that I can do sustainably for a long period of time. And that would be Twitter. Very interesting. Uh, I'm hardcore Twitter too. Um, let's let's segue into that. Actually, Twitter was the last thing I was going to talk about. Let's bring it uh, mixing it up. We met over Twitter. Actually, uh, uh, someone who helps us out with copywriting course, one of the writers, Dan Dan McDermott, he uh, interest, introduced us over Twitter, and within like a minute, we were like, okay, cool, call Skype. <laughs> right, it, it, that kind of collision happens all the time on Twitter. Yeah, see? and so I have a I have a YouTube channel. I think it has I don't know seventy to eighty thousand uh, subscribers right now. And that's great. And, and YouTube does send money. It sends uh, constant leads. It's almost like SEO for video. However, I haven't like met a ton of cool people off of YouTube. Now, maybe some people watch my channel, then a conference we meet. But on Twitter, I actually meet that person right then and there and some action happens. I've not found that so much with YouTube or any other platforms. Um, Twitter is pretty unique in that sense. And I feel like the reason I got more involved with Twitter was I kind of wanted to have more podcast conversations with people like you and just you know, kind of selfishly see what you're doing, all that kind of stuff and vice versa. And Twitter has been the easiest place to reach out and just say, oh, yeah. want to do a pod? They say, yes, Calendly, schedule, done. <laughs> have, have you, is, is that your experience too? Totally. I've, uh, most of the guests that I've booked on the show have been cold emails. But um, mm -hmm. if, I, if I go outside of email, it's definitely Twitter. I don't think I've booked a single guest over LinkedIn maybe one on Instagram, but it seems like Twitter DMs are more personal to creators than Instagram or TikTok is. Um, or maybe that's the bias of the t people I typically have on the show. But it definitely does seem like uh, if you get into somebody's Twitter DMs, you're so much more likely to actually reach that person as opposed to like their social media manager or something. It seems like people retain control or at least consistent um, access to their, their Twitter DMs. I would say also an interesting layer on top of that. So a cold email, let's say I cold email you. One, I have to find your email address. Okay, not a big deal. I send you an email. I have to craft an email. Hopefully you respond. With Twitter, mm -hmm. if I just said publicly, hey, I would love to have at Jay Klaus on my podcast. One, you'll likely see it. Two, other people might actually comment and say, Neville and Jay, that would be awesome. <laughs> Y'all get talking yeah. about something like that. It adds this whole other social interaction layer. And I've actually found it far easier um, and just, kind of frankly, more fun yeah. to reach out over Twitter rather than email. And like there's the social layer. There's also like much more social proof in proximity because you send an email and I'm like, who is this? And maybe I click a link. Oh, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm nervous to click a link. Uh, maybe I look at their email and they have a URL that I can search. On Twitter, someone's in your DMs, you just click their face and you have a pretty good sense quickly. Like, is this person legitimate? Are they crazy? <laughs> like, should I have caution? <laughs> Uh, in the world of Twitter, if you have like the, the benefit of having some level of social proof or audience on there, you can very, very quickly connect to people. It, totally true. I recently held a, I was like, I wonder if I could meet all these people I'm meeting on Twitter in person. And so I was like, who's in Austin? And so we had about 25 people at my place. Um, I'd say more than half of them. I did not know prior oh, wow. to that. At least I didn't know them in person. Right. So these are kind of strangers that I'm inviting to my home. To your home. And <laughs> I, I, I felt no, um, no 
no problem with it because it seems like I knew those people. I could just see their stuff. So if all of it was like political ranting or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe I just don't want this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a little skeptical. But you can see their their feed and be like, oh, this is like a real person. It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Um, it is something I've tried. What is your plan to grow on Twitter? Do you have one or is it just let's participate in that? Man, the playbook is so clear and obvious. Uh, I personally have a hard time following the playbook, but the plan to grow on Twitter is it's like a two, maybe three part plan. Top level, if you're creating content on Twitter, which you probably should, uh, threads are going to grow your account more than tweets. But I do think that you want to intersperse some tweets in there because um, they're going to help you maintain top of mind and tell the algorithm that you're active every day because who's going to write a really thoughtful thread every day? Tough, tough bar to hit. So if you if you shoot to have like one thread per week and at least one published tweet per day, that's going to do pretty well for you. And actually for a while, I thought that Twitter was um, really favoring volume. And right now, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's actually the opposite in some ways where like if you it seems to me, and this is how LinkedIn uh, appears to be working right now as well. It seems to me if you tweet something, it very slowly starts disseminating that to your followers. And as long as it starts getting some engagement, it'll continue to push that out. And if engagement accelerates, it'll push it even faster. But the the lifespan of a tweet now is closer to 24 hours than it is like two hours, you know? And so what I see happening a lot for me and other accounts and people that I've talked to if you tweet something great that you think is going to do well, but then you publish something else a couple hours later, Twitter's going to start favoring that most recent thing and stop exposing your original, at least to the same degree. So it seems like you're actually hurting yourself if you tweet for volume these days. And again, same for LinkedIn. Like the lifespan just seems to be longer for a single piece of content. So the first part of the playbook is just being consistent in publishing. Second part is making friends. Uh, that are also using Twitter and engaging in the conversations they are starting. So actually finding people, you know, kind of how you and I are doing it right now, where it's like, this person jives with me. We seem to be at like the same level of scale on Twitter. Let's like meet and talk and see what we're trying to do. And, uh, you know, it, it would be very natural for me to now say like, you know, I just want to like pay close attention to what Neville's doing because he's making this a priority. So I turn on my post notifications on Twitter for all of your tweets when it's something I can be additive to, I will reply to it. Most of the time, I'll at least like it. Maybe I'll retweet it and just do that with a bunch of people. And now not only are you supporting that person and probably getting some form of reciprocity, but um, you are in front of their audience if you're replying. And if they're aligned to the type of audience that you're trying to build, that's the fastest way to get in front of more people. It's not even actually just publishing your own stuff. Hmm. It, you, know what, you know what's funny? It's just like you said, the, the playbook for growing on Twitter is very well established. I think that's true for everything, like how to grow on YouTube, for sure. how to grow on any of those. Pretty much if you type in how to grow your email list and you look at those top 10 posts and just look at the top 10 suggestions, they're probably all the same it's because they're all true. It's just, it's just the consistency of doing that. Yeah. Um, I have actually just, I, I feel like the beginning of this year, I was like, okay, let me see what, what's working and what's not. The things that I consistently put out, let's say my, my Friday email, right? People look forward to it. It's almost like a, a regular thing. There is something about the consistency aspect of it that people like. And if you're consistent for a month, that doesn't really count, right? That, that's just like, okay, a month, then I'll top off. But I was consistent for it for years. And so people started uh, joining and looking forward to it. Um, 
Have you, it says that you have not been, you said you've not been following the Twitter playbook. Is there some sort of way that you can make that consistent um, that works for you? Some sort of incentivize an employee or someone or? Well, the one thing I am following is that I will tweet every single day. And I kickstarted this by, uh, I actually made this little website called tweet100.com. And I built like a no-code leaderboard. So if you wanted to get consistent on publishing on Twitter, you enroll in Tweet100, it's free. And as long as you add the hashtag Tweet100 to your tweet, it will add that tweet to your leaderboard. And you'll see like out of 100 days, how what is my success percentage? And I did that to force myself to be consistent. So I am tweeting every day. It's the threads that I can't really do because uh, I just... I love writing blog posts. I don't like reworking that into a Twitter native format. I just want to say like, I published this thing over here. It's great. <laughs> Go read it. But it's, it's not, it's not effective Twitter in that way. It does not reward that. It does not reward that at all. Um, and you, some of you just, you touched on that. It, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't think people like to take risks in saying, Hey, I consumed this and I think it's great. I think they actually want to, uh, have reason to believe that other people that have culturally defined good taste have already anointed that thing. I bring that up because publishing consistently makes you look legitimate and people want to support things that are already seen as legitimate. It's like um, Chance the Rapper puts out a new album and inexplicably within like an hour of this album going live, there are articles on Vox or Vulture or whatever saying how great this album is. Like they, they don't even have time to actually consume this and think for themselves. They're just saying like, well, the culture has already said that chance is great. Let's write an article that says this album is great. We'll get clicks for that. Uh, and I think, I think people are just getting lazier and lazier and forming their own opinions. And so we look for these shortcuts of, is this thing legitimate? Do other people believe in it? And any sign of legitimacy makes us feel safer and saying, yeah, I do like this. And being consistent signals legitimacy. Hmm. Um, let's talk about uh, the last couple of years. I've noticed like this personal brand thing go higher. It used to be you worked for a company. You worked on your company. All your social medias were your company social media. And then your own social media wasn't as important. I've seen kind of a tectonic shift in the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff happened. Um, everyone started kind of tweeting as themselves. Everyone started writing as themselves and then pointing to whatever projects they were involved with. So instead of my Twitter being copywriting course, which previously it would have been, it's Neville Medora. And then if I want to talk about copywriting course, I can. However, if that ever changes or I'm doing something else, I could also point people to someplace else. Have you noticed this? This is like a, I know it's been happening for a while, but it seems like it's accelerated lately. Just the increase of personal brand. I think just the value of the personal brand has grown. So if you sell your company, you always still direct your, all your marketing power over to something else. That's been, have you noticed that? For sure. For sure. I think it's, I think it's going hand in hand with like, again, kind of a cultural shift of we are losing trust in institutions and we don't necessarily trust brands as much because we know these are like capitalistic institutions. Um, people like to con connect with people. So even if Neville Medora, the brand of you, has a huge reach. It still feels like more of a personal connection. And we're getting thoughts directly from you that aren't necessarily being pushed through like an institutional lens. I think that people like the pendulum is just swung in that direction. And it'll probably swing back a little bit and revert to the mean where people don't go so far to say, like, I hate all institutions. I don't trust any institution. I just want to hear from people. 
But it's it's a pretty magical time right now that, yeah, like really, we want to learn from people. Um, instead of saying like, I want to go to Ohio State or UT Austin for college, it's like, let me actually just aggregate my entire own staff of teachers from like individuals that I can follow on Twitter or LinkedIn or a copywriting course and bring them all in. We, we've just seen the ability to learn from individuals and we like opinions also because a lot of brands and institutions started putting their content through like the lens of what is inoffensive <laughs> and not that we want things to be offensive, but we do want opinions. Uh, because again, I think, I think we, we're always looking for shortcuts of what are my opinions? I like to put on the jacket of somebody else's opinion that I align with and resonate with because then it's easier. I don't actually have to do thinking. So if I can see that, I like the way that Neville thinks, I'm just going to follow him, see what he's thinking, see his opinions. And when people ask me about it, I can just put on my Neville jacket essentially and say, well, this is how I feel because this is the voice and the idea of someone that I really relate to. Let's talk about uh, podcasting for a second. It sounds like all the media that we have, it almost takes everything that we were doing before, let's say the, the 80s, 90s, uh, before all the, all the technology got really good. It took, so we would have conversations like this in the past, right? Uh, people would interact with each other. Now everything's becoming like, it's almost like the RSSification of almost everything, right? So all every convert, uh, call you had is now kind of like a podcast. So if this was like 10 plus years ago, this may have just been a phone call between for sure, or maybe like a, an early Zoom call or something along those lines. Now it's published to the world. Um, so one of the things I've noticed is you have a lot of conversations, podcasting. Podcasting is just listening in conversations that two people are having or three people or four people, however many people. Um, you have a podcast. I think you have million plus downloads. Um, what have you learned from podcasting? Oh, man, like just about everything because <laughs> we learn from people, right? So podcasting is like a really great way of doing that. Uh, uh, somebody kind of broke my brain when they reminded me like, hey, not long ago, like literally just decades ago, um, for you to listen in on a conversation between two people, they would know you're there. You know, like it's been only recent history that you can be in conversations without those people knowing explicitly that you are listening into that conversation. And it's really changed the whole world of like, mentorship because some of my biggest mentors are people I've never met. But when I see they've gone on a little bit of a podcasting tour, I'll be like, okay, let me listen to these three episodes that they went on just to hear what's on their mind and how they're thinking about things. It's pretty crazy. And the crazy thing about podcasting to me is um, people don't apply much of a filter. Like uh, we see it now with like a lot of celebrities and people with public profiles going on podcasts. And usually they're going on like their friends podcasts like Conan or Dak Shepard. And so Maybe they have a discussion beforehand of things that they aren't going to be willing to talk about. But the, the at least seeming, seemingly openness of people on podcasts is a gift to the listeners. It's a very generous thing. At some point, it's probably going to cause some high-profile problem for some high-profile person, though. And that might not be the case forever. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> We're lucky we live in a time when you don't have to be a news anchor on one of the five cable channels in the world to interview people like anybody can interview people and have conversations with anybody as long as they're willing those conversations right now are pretty unguarded which is remarkable um so anyway to your to a more exact answer to your question what have i learned from podcasting like i i'm just constantly learning how the creators that i have on my show other creators are building their businesses every one of these episodes is impacting the direction of my own creator business um 
But it's also taught me like how to be a better conversationalist, how to ask good questions, um, what type of uh, editing makes people listen longer. You know, like I obsess over retention graphs in audio, which are way easier to achieve than YouTube graphs. Uh, but that's probably that's probably the uh, the long and short of it. Well, how about this? I have noticed. So uh, if if you notice behind me, I made it like a little. Actually, I took the ca- the mics and put them over here. But there's a little podcasting studio here. Uh-huh. There's a three camera setup here. There's a there's a sw- there's a switching board where I can switch the camera. Or yeah, kind of jazz. Um, I thought you know I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh well Indian Joe Rogan over here and uh, and start interviewing people about content marketing. So I did, and it was it was interesting to my own audience, but it never actually grew the pie. So I would post these on YouTube. And they were fun for me because I was literally just asking people such as yourself, like kind of like what they're doing is almost uh, almost a, a self in a selfish way. And so I was posting these and um, what I've noticed and from a lot of other creators that interviews actually don't do that well for the most part, sometimes on YouTube sometimes or work. just in general on, on you um, on YouTube specifically. So if you do, uh, if you if you sit down, I bet you notice this on your own YouTube channel. If you interview me and just post this conversation as it is, it'll do okay and your hardcore fans will like it. But if you sit down and go, hey, it's Jay and I'm going to teach you about podcasting today, that video will probably do much better in the long run. Yeah, Have you noticed sure. that on your own channel? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we haven't experimented with it on our channel because we really want the channel to be very targeted as like, this is what it is. It's long, for, long form interviews. If I were to do more talking head stuff on YouTube, I would make a separate uh, channel for it. Uh, and those videos would do better because uh, long form historically is just not the content that uh, has performed super well on YouTube. And interviews, if they're not structured really well from a headline format, from a chapter marker standpoint, it's a big leap to get someone to say, I'm about to sign up to watch 60 minutes of something hoping that what I get out of it is good. But, you know, you can you can combat that a little bit by saying in the title, here are a couple of specific takeaways. In the beginning of the video, here are things that we're learning in this. In the chapter markers saying, you know, aligned with those same points, here are the spots where you can learn about these specific things. And that would help retention quite a bit. We've, we've seen that. But um, doing long-form interviews on YouTube is still playing the YouTube game on hard mode for sure. <laughs> yeah. It, the other thing about podcasting, I think historically podcast as a technology has not got a lot of love. I believe Apple kind of controls most of the podcasting industry and they've been slowly adding features here and there. Um, I've also noticed that Google now indexes your podcast and I believe transcribes it in the background and will send people to specific sections, which I think that's a huge, huge yep. help that, that, that wasn't uh, around just even a year ago. Um, I think podcasting is easier than ever. So most people's conversations can now just be recorded through easy stuff like we're using Riverside.fm. It's super easy. Um, I am almost trying to use it more as a way to meet people. I'm not sure I can grow a huge show about content marketing. It's tough. And I mean, like being, I don't know, I, I have ambivalent feelings on having like specific niches because I think at the beginning, if you have a defined niche like content marketing, it's going to be easier for you to get an initial foothold and get people listening in. But I also think you're going to have more churn over time because people will feel like they graduate from that content. Um, it's harder to grow something that's a little bit more ambiguous because it's more difficult to say like, hey, this thing is for you to any given person. Um, the key to growth in podcasting comes down to a few things if you're doing an audio show. 
audio listeners convert to audio listeners. And that's pretty much the only thing that reliably converts to audio listeners. So being a guest on other shows, uh, getting your feed or like an episode of your show in someone else's feed, doing cross promos, getting featured in the discover section of listening apps. But for a niche show, it's even hard. It's harder to get your show featured in those discover sections because these apps are gonna be like, well, only a small fraction of our overall listeners are going to care about content marketing. So why would we expose your show to all of our potential listeners when we don't think it's going to be uh, a huge like click-through rate? So that's why I went to YouTube. And honestly, the show has, I mean, this is a small amount of data, hard to say statistically, but in the two months that it's been on um, uh, YouTube, audio downloads have gone up on Apple Podcasts and mm. Spotify. Could that be uh, correlation more than causation? Maybe. Um, but it hasn't cannibalized listeners. And the entire YouTube audience, uh, in my opinion, is new listeners. So I can't measure YouTube downloads in my podcast host. But when I think about these two things, you know, just mentally, qualitatively, I know I'm reaching more people than ever before by being on YouTube. Well, if, it, so if this goes back to our email versus Twitter introduction type of thing, Twitter has built in social proof. Podcast doesn't really. Okay, there are the reviews. That That is one thing. But that's one social proof element. However, with YouTube, you'd be like, this guy got 50,000 views on this video that came out yesterday. That's a social cue of if this person has views or not. Totally. Right? So I think, I think YouTube has some sort of built-in virality, um, whereas there's no such thing as virality for podcasts. Not, not yet. Not much. Um, some of the Chinese podcasting apps, are, I think, are like light years ahead of what we have over here for some reason. And um, they, they've got, uh, it's, it's got the text thing. You can follow along by text mm. and take notes in text. They've got all sorts of different things. And so I'm hopeful for the future that essentially we'll copy those and have that kind of podcasting uh, network. But for right now, it's like, it just seems like hard to grow a podcast uh, naturally versus like if you have a YouTube channel, the virality is built in. If you have a Twitter channel, the virality is built in. Super hard. I mean, podcasting as a medium, whether it's audio only, definitely audio only, but I think even doing long form interviews on YouTube, like, it is a relationship deepener. It's not the best top of funnel acquisition, like audio podcasts, especially it's relationship deepening. Because if I look at the retention graphs for the same episode in audio versus video, retention graphs on audio are like consistently above 70% uh, all the way through. And YouTube, like there's just a huge drop after the first 10 minutes on all those videos where like you do get people finishing every single one of those. And those are the people that are likely subscribed and watching every single week. Uh, but real growth on YouTube comes from the discover features within YouTube. And they're constantly just saying like, let's see if this video fits at the end card of this video and this, and let me put on the home feed for this subset of users. And there's no proof that person is actually the right target. YouTube's just trying to figure it out using some sort of internal tracking. And, um, it's not great top of funnel acquisition unless, you know, some percentage of those people that it gets exposed to organically are going to say, oh, I do like this and I do like this guy and now I'll subscribe. But on the whole, most of your video views are going to be discover, discover features from YouTube. And most of those people are not your target. They're not going to watch all the way through, um, which isn't going to do a whole heck of a lot for you. Did it, uh, hey, this reminds me of a funny story. You know who Lex Friedman is? Yeah. Probably. He's a, he's a famous podcaster now. And he was on Joe Rogan. He was just a guy who taught artificial intelligence classes at MIT. He was a pretty young guy. And he came on Joe Rogan a couple of times. And Joe Rogan was like, you got to start a podcast. And he called it the AI podcast, the artificial intelligence podcast, because that was his field. 
And I think he recorded something and like within the first 30 episodes, he had people like Elon Musk on. I mean, it was, it was a very popular podcast. The problem was it was all centered around AI. And as a person, we're not interested in generally just one thing. I'm not only interested in content marketing. And so he did an interesting thing where he had this popular podcast and he's like, I don't think it should be called AI podcast because I want to ask about a lot of other stuff. So he called it the Lex Friedman podcast. And um, I remember thinking, huh, that's interesting. He has this really popular podcast, but he still made that jump to Lex Friedman, much like Joe Rogan experience. It's not just, you know, a specific thing. And I thought, and that ended up being a very smart move. And so it's bad in one case where now Lex Friedman is just this general thing and AI is very specific. So that's helpful. But he also has the room now to expand his topics from anything he wants outside of AI. And if he wants to bring it back to AI, he can. And I have definitely been seeing more and more people just doing that. So I had a, uh, these, my original top uh, podcast name was something like copywriting course. And I remember thinking like, it's hard to ask only about copywriting for an hour every sure. week. It's very difficult. And so I was like, let me just call it Neville Medora. I can ask about anything and I'll try to like steer towards a certain direction, but I can theoretically ask about anything else. Um, what's your podcast called? It's called Creative Elements. And the, pro the podcast was a precursor to the name of my newsletter that I have now, which is called Creator Science. And I think the podcast should probably be called Creator Science because it's a lot more intuitive as to the type of people that I talk to and the type of thing that I talk about. Um, but Creative Elements is the show name talking to creators about how they actually build a business behind their art and creativity. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to do the Jay Klaus show. No, it, it, any specific reason? Just, is this too general? Yeah. I mean, I think it's harder. Like fandom is a weird thing to me. I think at some point when you've already built a pretty large audience, it's easier that, to then lean on your name because it's it's broadening out. But, um, you know, I had a whole overall business this podcast was supporting. And I also didn't want to just have like the J. Klaus newsletter and the J. Klaus community because it's it's weird for someone to be like, hey, do you subscribe to the J. Klaus newsletter? Like it's, it's, it's harder to refer in my opinion and it feels a little more egotistical. And if that person doesn't already have a huge cultural awareness and uh, following, then people are going to feel weird recommending like this specific newsletter called the J. Klaus newsletter. Um, mm -hmm. I think you can get there if you want to, but uh, I wanted to lean into a little bit more of uh, the legitimacy that people perceive with a brand. Um, now, you know, is that the absolute right move? Like I can, I can see cases either way. Uh, I think, I think your name can be an asset and if it is an asset already leverage it. If it's not an asset yet, I don't think I would go with your name. I would go with something that's a little bit more intuitive, uh, behind what this thing is because your name just doesn't mean anything to anybody yet. And so let's use a name that when people hear it, it means something. Cool. So, so I'm going to go to a bigger picture here. So you've got like this YouTube channel, you've got a uh, podcast, you've got a blog that goes out, you've got a Twitter, you're doing LinkedIn. There's a whole world of content you're putting out. Now, where does money come in? So you get this big ort cloud of things going on in the center. Somehow money, I, I assume, is coming in to pay for children and wives and family, right? For sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, I have seven income streams. If you press me, I could probably touch on them. And all of them have like sub bits to it. But 
you have digital products, so courses, workshops, memberships, my membership community. It's about five months old and literally doubled the revenue of my business after rolling it out. Uh, affiliate income, um, uh, sponsorships, which breaks down to podcast sponsorships and newsletter sponsorships. Services, if I do uh, consulting or coaching, which is a pretty one-off thing patronage, money that people just give me to uh, support the work that I do. And I am missing one. What am I missing? Said affiliate. Six over there. Courses, membership, affiliate, sponsorship, services, consulting, donations. I'm missing one. I'm not sure what it is. No worries. So, uh, okay. So you got, you got a bunch of those things. Um, let's say I hold up the hypothetical gun to your head again. Oh, royalties. Sorry. Royalties is the last one. Royalties. Got it. So uh, I hold up a hypothetical gun. There's a lot of uh, holding up a gun. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, which, which, which of those income streams do you keep? And you have to uh, drop all the rest. Must drop all the rest. Um, I would say digital products. Mm. So that means courses, I Yes, proprietary, digital, infinitely scalable pro products, which are likely digital courses or workshops or downloadables, templates, things like that. Hmm. Just because you can make them once and then sell them a million times, you can update them with min minimal effort. And if a thousand new people buy, yep. yep. And yeah, everyone that goes extra effort, everyone that experiences it can become an advocate, so it can perpetuate itself. You know, I thought about like. Uh, I was thinking, well, would it be affiliate revenue? Because that's very passive. It's very hands off, but that could be taken away at any time or changed at any time. You don't have full mm -hmm. control over that. I was thinking about uh, royalties and, and that kind of depends on whoever is licensing your content, continue to do a good job themselves. And I thought about sponsorship and the problem with sponsorship is now you are beholden to another entity to do well by them. And it's kind of like having a boss. And I thought about memberships, which is a huge part of my business. The favorite thing that I'm doing right now but it's also very time intensive. So if I were to pick just one thing, it would be digital products. Okay, so uh, tell me if you've noticed this. So you do creator science and that you see all these creators. I've been creating courses since kind of the early days, uh, maybe like 2010, I sold my first digital product when it was kind of like this, it was kind of like a new fangled idea a little bit back then. Um, now it's become pretty commonplace as the tools have got built out, it's easier to make. Um, I have noticed this certain thing happened. Someone builds somewhat of an online following, let's say even a hundred people, and they offer a doodad, some sort of course, some sort of video, some sort of downloadable, right? And they, they sell it and they sell like a, a hundred of them, a thousand of them, whatever. And they're like, well, I made 40 grand. This is amazing. And so in your head, you think, well, 40 grand multiplied by 12 months equals this much money, right? That's how you start thinking. So you think I'm going to do this again and again and again. And what happens is the audience is just like, whoa, okay, you've been launching the same product like 50 times, right? It gets a little bit old. So then what you naturally do is you build another product, right? So you go from uh, just copywriting course to now I'm going to show you how to build an autoresponder. Then you build another product. Now I'm going to copywriting, then an autoresponder. Now I'm going to show you how to build an email. So now let's say you've got three different courses. Um, what happens is I've noticed that people, they start to get muddled up together. So people say, well, I want to learn copywriting, but I also want to apply it to my emails. So do I have to buy both the email course and the copywriting course? And then what if I want to learn artists, but now I have to like upgrade to that. So then I noticed the process called bundling where people say, you know what, just get all these together. And then what happens is 
invariably people want to go to passive, like kind of passive income, monthly income, MRR, right? And so they want people to pay every month. So they say, okay, there's an expensive bundle for $1,000. Instead, what if you pay 20 bucks a month and you get all of it? So I've noticed a lot of people go to that. And then once you're in that membership, that membership thing where it's a month to month to month, community is a natural ad. So my prediction for the last year was that in about one, two to three years, you'll see everyone have a community of some sorts. And I think you've already sort of seen it with Facebook groups, but then people are uh, moving off to things like circle.so and different platforms where you can own your community rather than Facebook own the app. Um, is, that, is this a, a common thing that you're saying that someone builds a course, someone builds many courses, then they bundle the courses, then they move to a membership, then move to it? I definitely do see that. Um, there, there are two things that, uh, that we can pull out here. One is like the model question. And Nathan Barry, founder of ConvertKit, came on the show, episode 96, I think. And he put this really well, where he said there, there are two models that he sees creators having. One is the strip mall model and one is a skyscraper model. They're not necessarily bad or different. The question is, what do you want to have? And what you're describing is the strip mall model, where you basically say, I have this land and I'm going to be building all of these different properties that you can purchase. And all that added together makes a pretty nice income. And that's really nice. Or you could choose to say, nope, I'm only going to have copywriting course and everything I do serves that course in building top of funnel so that I don't have people saying, man, you've been launching this thing over and over again because I consistently have a replenishing store of new people in my audience that I can pitch this thing to for the first time. Um, I, I take kind of a hybrid of what I recommend to people now where I say, I think you want to do like the skyscraper model, but uh, you know, you have a signature product that's like the suite on top of the skyscraper. But then you also have a couple of floors in between that you're stopping at. Like you walk in at the lobby and you have this free thing that you say, hey, this is a free thing. This is what got you in the door in the first place. I want you to go up to the first floor and, and pay $27 for this workshop. And if you had a really great experience with that, awesome. I think you'd be a great candidate for this pre-recorded course that I have. That's $200. And if you really love that, then I think you should join my membership. And that's the most expensive thing that I offer. And you drive everything towards that skyscraper. I think actually we're in a, a point in the cycle where we've already seen a lot of people launch these communities. And I think we're actually going to, I think we're already seeing the pendulum swing back in the other direction. I think if people are, are in a point now where they're thinking, it's time to do my community, I think they're already going to be a little late to the party because a lot of people have already had bad experiences with the add-on community to a course because it did seem like an easy thing to add on. And then the experience was very bad most of the time because it was added on as an afterthought. The experience itself was an afterthought. And so it's going to be harder and harder to compete on community as a product or an add-on. You have to have like a really remarkable community experience to do it. Hmm. Yeah, I've noticed if there's, uh, I have seen some people do it. It's like, we have a community. It's like a Facebook community or whatever platform. And you're like, yeah, but what? And they just ask dumb questions in there. They're like, What's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? Ends up becoming a pretty ho-hum experience. One of the things we did with our uh, own community, we're like, we're not making a community for community's sake. And the reason I want to save the community is because the threads that happen are very interesting can be reshared. Sure. Whereas yeah. something like Facebook encourages new comments, right? So it's always constantly new. And what happens is it's the same questions that get answered over and over. It's much like if you go into a subreddit, sometimes it's the same questions asked over and over and over. And so... Um, it sounds like if the community has something to do, I like the idea of tweet 100 a lot. So if you start a cohort of tweet 100 saying, hey, everyone tweet for 100 days in a row, everyone's on the same page and everyone supposedly will end in the same place. They have the same goal. That is pretty cool. 
Yeah, I, th I think you have to be like really clear on what the purpose of your community is, why people are there and why community is the right delivery mechanism for whatever transformation you're promising for people. Because a lot of people just think of it like, well, this is like MRR. This is like SaaS. I can open up a community platform and throw my audience at it. And it <clears throat> basically becomes like a glorified but bad support forum where you're just waiting on questions and you're responding to it as if you were a product. Um, but like the best communities that actually have retention and stick around are the ones that foster relationships and actually help people go from point A to point B. And in fact, you need a longer term relationship to the thing for whatever reason. The, the community that I have, if I'm helping people hit this place of being a professional creator, like one, the landscape is changing all the time. Whatever is working in Twitter right now is not what's working in Twitter six months from now. Uh, it also is a long process. Like I can't make a pre-recorded course and say, if you finish this course, you're going to be a professional creator and be making all the money you need to survive next week. It takes a long time and a lot of small improvements that you have to do along the way. So community made the most sense as a mechanism for working with people at a level of scale. Like, of course, I could just be a one-on-one -on -one coach or consultant or advisor or whatever, but um, that's not very financially viable for me or the individual. I figured I could make that work with a community model. Most people basically just say like, and you get access to this community forum as part of buying the course. And they don't put any more thought into how do I engage with that? What, what is the way that I actually get value out of engaging with that? And it's like, well, you just got to post questions. <laughs> okay, but that's putting a lot of impetus on me. Most people are lazy. They're not going to be willing to do that. They're not going to have a good experience with the thing. They're going to opt out pretty quickly. Hmm. That's, a, that's a major downside of community. I think if you don't do it right. Um, Here's a quick story. I had a friend who started one of the first uh, iPhone app companies back in 2010-ish or so. And what they noticed, what a lot of people, there's this big gold rush to move to apps because there's all these stories about apps are making a bazillion dollars a day, right? So everyone says, well, I have a website and I want to make it into an app. And he would always say, okay, think about it. You're going from a web browser. You could always already access from your phone, your, your website. What benefit would making it an app do, right? Because you could already access it. And so the thing that he said was, think about it. Your phone is always with you. It's portable. It knows your location. It has a camera. It can record audio. Uh, it, it knows what orientation you're holding it in. Can you use any of those things in your app to make it better? Correct. So something like Yelp uh, at the time, yes, that was very helpful to be able to open up an app and it shows all the restaurants around you. That makes sense to make it an app. Just copywritingcourse.com and just you get the same information on the app that you would get on the website. Makes zero sense to do it. So similar, I think a lot of people are making communities thinking, uh, oh, community is the next big thing. You could do recurring income, but there's, there's a real reason for them to have a community. One interesting way that we saw our community being used is I originally put up on our course like a, a, a WordPress community a long time ago. And it was the same thing. It was just kind of like almost like a support forum. There, there's no real reason to it. And then what we noticed was I moved to a different forum where it was easier to actually put proper formatting and everything in. And people would post their actual copy. And instead of saying, this is wrong with it, this is wrong with it, what I would do is be like, I could just rewrite this really quick. I mm -hmm. just redo it for someone. And that ended up becoming one of the, the, the main draws, um, that in office hours where we actually just redo people's copy in the community. And so that ended up being a good use of community software rather than just like, hey, here's a community, y'all take over, y'all yeah, go interact. Totally. And that's a very easy to message benefit too, that you can put on a sales page and people can understand, oh, this is how I engage with it. This is what the relationship to this community space will be. A lot of people don't put enough thought into it and they're 
They're just banking on the strength of their audience and their personality and their relationships. And when you don't build expectations of how's this thing going to work? How do you interact with it? What are the outcomes you can expect because of it? Everyone's going to close that loop in their own mind, in their own mind with some assumption. And so you have all these people coming into your community. They've all made their own assumptions as to what they're going to get out of it. And you have no idea what any of them think those assumptions are. And so it's like impossible to win because you don't know what winning looks like for the individual, for the group as a whole. And so churn just goes crazy. And the thing that's different about community versus really any other product, there is negative network effects. Like network effects are usually a good thing because it, mm. it means if you get people in here, it makes the space more valuable and makes it more likely that other people will join. In communities, the opposite is true. If people begin leaving, and those are people who have relationships to other people who are still in the community, at, at best, it makes people sad that one of their friends is now gone. They can't interact with them here. At worst, they're thinking, am I the idiot? Like, why am I still sticking around if these people are leaving? Like, do they know something I don't? Should, should I also leave? It creates all these, like, there's constantly prompting in people's minds of, okay, these people left. Why did they leave? Why am I staying? Should I leave? Is now the time? Uh, and it's, it's really tough to do it well. It, you know, network effects is one of the things I was most disappointed about WordPress. I've been a big WordPress fan for years. WordPress is a blogging platform for those who don't know. And it kind of sucks because I always thought WordPress would become this, it would envelop social media. So right now, if you, if you post on Facebook, you post it, it shows to other people's feeds and they can comment natively in there. That's the whole point, uh, the, the interaction. With WordPress, it's like you take all this time, you put something out and it just goes to the void. Yeah. Um, you have to sign up like your name and your email to comment. There were some plugins like Discuss, which I thought had the opportunity to unify all the WordPress blogs. But now I see Twitter as a better blog. I can just post something. I don't have to write a title on it. I just post it and it posts. It shows people within seconds. I'm getting feedback, comments, all that kind of stuff. I can tag other people on the network. The network is what I'm coming for. As a blogging platform, Twitter is bad. You can't even do inline graphics. You can't bold things. It's, it's not good. However, the network effects is what you stay for. Yeah. And so I, I have learned that, that that is very powerful. There's a Metcalf's rule, which the, the value of any network is N squared. I think he, in, a, in an interview with Tim Ferriss, he said he just made that up. But, but it, is, <laughs> it is kind of valuable to know. So uh, some, a, a network with 1,000 people is valuable, but a network with 1.8 billion people, such as Facebook, is so inherently invaluable to a species that uh, it, it's hard to get off of. Yeah, totally. So, this is the tension that I have with Twitter, though, because like on one hand, I, I have this back and forth all the time where it's like, just write threads. Whatever you're writing, just write threads. It's going to spread farther. People are going to engage with it. You're going to get in front of new people. But, you know, six months go by, you have this banger of a thread. It's really hard to reference that. You know, like you got to find it. You got to search for it. You got to share that. And it doesn't have, it doesn't seem to carry as much weight. Whereas I'm sure there are blog posts in your life that you've referred to people like a hundred times, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. ah, you know, have you read this? It's this great piece by Paul Graham or, hey, have you read this, this spiky point of view post by Wes Cow? I think about that one all the time. I'm constantly searching for that. Google finds it really quickly. I take that URL, I share it with somebody. And that's the benefit of, of blogs and the type of writing that I really uh, am leaning into is like, what is, what is the idea that's pretty timeless and can articulate something that people are feeling and thinking better than anything that's out there right now? So that becomes like a referenceable, evergreen, uh, thing that people can can just share over time and it's easy to find. But again, it's hard to get that thing spreading through social media without adopting that to some platform native piece of writing 
that then tries to push them towards the full piece. Totally. Um, I know I have to respect your time over here. It's about time, but thank you so much for talking about us. Uh, talk to, uh, we talked about Twitter, podcasting, community memberships. This is fun. I'm curious to see where it goes. And I've been following your journey. And thanks to Dan for uh, introducing us. And uh, thanks for having us, Jay Klaus. Uh, how can uh, people find you? Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Jay Klaus on Twitter. Uh, I have a podcast episode with you coming out on Creative Elements. So search hey. Creative Elements in your feed and find that. You can get round two of this interview, even though this depends on what order these things air <laughs> as to whether it's a round two or if this is the round two, we'll find out. Uh, but yeah, Jay Klaus on Twitter is great. Nice. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Hey, it's Neville. And if you really like that, I would suggest you do a couple of different things. Sign up for our email newsletter, first of all, copywritingcourse.com slash newsletter. You're going to get our Friday newsletter that's super popular. In addition, you get basically a masterclass on copy. All the psychology hacks and tactics and examples that you could want. It has a super, super crazy high open rate, and you're going to like it too. The other thing you could do is follow me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter, at NevMed. So go follow me there and say hi. Then the number one best thing you can do is join our copywriting course. So I have a company called copywritingcourse.com. And as you can imagine, it's a course on writing copy, but it's so much more than that. Inside, we have this giant members area and there's tons of people learning to write copy and getting better, doing assignments and practicing and growing their businesses together. A lot of people in there are trying to grow their audiences. So they're taking their social medias, LinkedIn profiles, tweets, all that kind of stuff, and learning how to make them better so they get more reach, more amplitude, and ultimately more sales for their business and their offering. Inside the course, if you literally want us to look at a blog post and say, hey, how can I make this better? Post it in there, and guess what? Myself and other writers go in and punch up your writing. Oftentimes, we just rewrite the thing to make it better because it's easier than just explaining step by step. And you can see what we did to improve your writing Take that lesson, and then on your next blog post, make it even better. You can apply this to homepages, sales pages, cold emails, tweets, social media, anything you use to market and amplify your voice. Go to copywritingcourse.com slash join. I think it's one of the best values on the internet for community and help and advice and learning, and you're going to love it. My name is Neville Medora. I'll talk to you later.